I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. If you live in a market served by Frontier Airlines, I wanted to mention to you that they're doing a gimmick today with a handful of airfares that are one penny. All you pay is the September 11th charges, typically right around $15 one way for your ticket. Uh, But remember, with Frontier, like Allegiant Spirit and the full fare lines, everything else is extra after you buy your ticket. But it is quite a catching thing to be able to buy a ticket for a penny. And so check out what they have today. If you are in a Frontier market, see which places... They're serving you with that cheap fare. It's for off-peak times now into late February. Coming up in just a few minutes, today's Clark Rageous Moment is about unbelievably callous, cavalier, horrific treatment of our aging veterans. I can't believe what I'm going to share with you. Um, Coming up later, there's a new idea percolating that is a potential partial solution to the problems with identity theft. I'm going to tell you what it is and why it's controversial. And right now, I want to talk about Amazon selecting its H2, HQ2, whatever, and instead they picked H2 and a half and a half. So they split it with Long Island City and Queens and Crystal City in Virginia. Um, So each area potentially over time will have 25,000 new ultra highly paid employees. There'll be Amazon employees and it will lead to a lot of spinoff jobs for contractors in the DC metro area and the New York metro area. And both areas, both uh, the cities and the states involved had to give Amazon huge money. So you have one of the largest retailers in the United States, the largest online retailer in the United States, and in order to attract their business, government giving them subsidies in the billions of dollars in each jurisdiction. And I got to tell you, I cannot stand the way this economic development system works in the United States with local and state governments offering corporate welfare to bribe companies to come to their areas. And remember, it's a zero-sum game. If a company is taken from a community and goes somewhere else because they were offered a bribe, or and to me these are bribes, or if one comes to an area and leaves another area that suffers a loss, there is no net gain for America. Instead, the losers are other taxpayers, both other companies and us as private individuals, where government officials are deciding that one company is more important than another, that one company is more deserving of corporate welfare than another. And this is really lame. This idea that we should bribe companies to move job centers from one place to another in America 
is just dumb. The reality is companies should, as historically been the case till we got into this whole corporate welfare thing, companies should choose to locate where they locate because it serves their needs for serving their customers or the infrastructure is what they're looking for in an area or the taxation is what they're looking for in an area. The schools are what they're looking for or culture for their employees to attract the best employees they can get. In other words, there are so many other factors that historically have determined where companies locate, but now it's being distorted by these handouts, by these bribes that local and state governments are paying to no net benefit to society. I mean, think about how much better it would be if overall tax levels were lowered for everyone instead of the freebie money being given to a particular favored company or a favored few companies. Just my opinion. Greg's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Clark. It's an honor to speak to with you. Well, great to have you here with us. And you have a lot of grandkids. Well, we have been very blessed. And by the way, there's still three that can have more. Well, how many kids do you have? Well, together we have six. Six kids. And how many grandkids? We're up to 15 right now. Wow. And it, they're a blessing. So we could average your number of grandkids with mine, and we'd each have seven and a half, because I got zero <laughs> so far. All right, but I'll, I'll tell you, they, they are worth raising these other children. <laughs> They're just great. That's wonderful. Now, every Christmas, Clark, you come out and tell us not to buy store carts. However, with 15 grandchildren that I have to mail off presents to, the cost of mailing becomes prohibitive. So I go ahead and uh, I buy store cards from people that I know aren't going out of business and send them to the kids. Now, if the kids are teenage, I call the kids and ask them which store. And if they're not, I call their parents. So when you send these, are you sending electronic cards instead of actual physical cards? No, sir. I, I send the physical cards that I buy in the stores. But you're mailing those, aren't you? Yes, but the cost of mailing several of those versus mailing um, presents is... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got that. Okay, so you want an alternative because of the problems with gift cards? Well, I don't think that... I, I don't have a problem with the gift cards. I just know that you come out against them every Christmas. Well, because my feeling is that the greatest thing you could send these grandkids instead of gift cards, would be cash. Yeah, uh, and I I guess I'm kind of old school in that we never send cash through the mail. Understood. And But, you know, if somebody pilfers the mail, the gift card is just uh, almost as valuable to them as having the cash. But I understand the concern. So I, when you send the gift cards, do you also send a note with them? Oh, yes. We, we include a, a card, and uh, we always make out on the, on the gift card how much the card is worth and which grandchild it's to in case there's multiple in the household. 
and each child gets their own card and their own Christmas card and then put them in a mailer. So I don't want to I don't want to discourage you from doing what you're doing cuz it's working. You haven't had any of the problems I'm gathering I've talked about with the them getting the gift cards and all the money's already spent on them by a crook. You know, there's this problem with hackers where they empty the cards before recipients have received them. But right. if it's been working for you and it's a system that you're able to talk to each grandchild gives you a chance to to talk with them. Uh, you ask them what they want. You give them exactly what they want. I shouldn't interfere in that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if it, as long as it's working just fine, and any of the grandkids that you actually see at Christmas, do you get to see any of the fifteen, or is it always? Well, uh, we we do have uh, times when uh, one or two of the families will come to us here in Oklahoma. And, of course, then we hold that back until Christmas morning so we can open them there. But we still get cards. It it seems to work to the child's benefit, too, Clark, because they're not getting something that they're going to put in the closet. Okay. Well, then, again, I defer to you, and I don't want to discourage you from doing what has, to this point, worked so well for you with your grandkids. Well, I appreciate what you tell us. You know, you, you really do help us a lot. So thank you for that. I'm just curious, with 15 grandkids, how much are you able to give each of them? Because that's a lot of grandkids to have to give Christmas gifts to. Well, it, it, it kind of depends on their age. When they're still in school, in, in, in uh, public schools, then it, they each get 50. When they get into college... They each get a hundred, and when they get married, they get a nice card and um, Merry Christmas wishes. <laughs> so the money's over once they get married, huh? Well, I, you know, like I said, I'm kind of old school. I like them to make it on their own. Well, I, I love everything you said. Obviously, you adore these grandchildren, and you're there for them. Even if you can't be there in person, you're still there for them and keep doing what you're doing. Dan's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Dan. Hey, how you doing? Great, thank you, Dan. You got a question for me about potentially getting into investment real estate. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So I just bought a house back in June, so I'm not sure if this is even a possibility, if I would even get approved for a second mortgage, but I'd like to know, um, without putting much of a down payment down, is that First of all, if I even get approved, is it possible to maybe do like a piggyback mortgage or something like that? So there's a lot of money available right now for mortgage lending. Uh, Activities slowed down. Lenders are more accommodating right now. But just because you might be able to work out some kind of unusual financing arrangement to buy a rental property, I prefer that you not do it and take the time to build up savings for a down payment that would be substantial on a rental property. The reason is, we, is, as we've seen, real estate can turn unusually quickly and turn in reverse. And I don't expect anything in our lifetimes like what happened last decade where values in so many places collapsed. But when you get a rental property, a lot of lenders, if you're going to get a, a good lender with decent interest rates for 
investment property, you're going to need a substantial down payment. Anything you do where somebody says, oh, I can be your hero, I can make this happen, you don't have to have any real money for the down payment, even though it's a you know an investment property, you're going to pay for it, not just by having to carry higher debt on a property and not having an easy exit strategy, but you're also going to pay more money in fees and interest rates. So Okay. So I, I what would, do you think for saving up for a down payment? Um, I mean, do you think I should try to save up for the 20% to avoid the PMI? or Well, for, I mean, yes, without <clears throat> doubt on an investment property. Okay. But not even because of the PMI. I want you to have substantial down payment because that way you lower the risk of the property and you increase the odds that the monthly carry costs you have of rent, taxes, insurance, that you will be able to get more in rent than what you're having to pay out every month. You don't want to be in a situation where you're uh, renting a property to somebody and you're having to spend more money in a month than what's coming in each month. So it's just good fundamental real estate investing to put real money of yours up up front so that cash flow-wise moving forward the numbers are so much more compelling for you and over time. And if you just, if you discover you hate being a landlord because you have the down payment money in the deal, you have an easy exit. But if you don't, you're stuck. So for all those reasons, even though doing a rental property seems like it would be a cool thing, do the hard work first, save the down payment money, and then get into owning rental property. Today's Clark-rageous moment is something that really upsets me. You know, when I think about the bravery of the men and women who serve our country with distinction in the U.S. military, that they depend on the VA to provide proper assistance and care later in their lives. And there is a requirement that the VA put out a report on the quality of nursing homes around the country. It was by a congressional act, but the Department of Veterans Affairs was not complying, would not release the information. And finally, through actions of USA Today, that information is now public as of just four hours ago. And this is so disturbing But a lot of the VA nursing homes got horrific scores for how they are not taking care of our veterans at the point in life that they need nursing homes. And more than 100 of the VA nursing home facilities got atrocious scores for quality of care for our veterans. It seems that this is something that goes on and on and on where the Department of Veterans Affairs says they're going to get better, says they're going to do a better job for our veterans, and it hasn't seemed to matter who's in power in the White House, the veterans still get the short end of the stick. We ask so much of them to put their lives on the line for our freedom. And in return for that, we as a grateful nation are supposed to provide for their needs and to break that commitment 
to our veterans absolutely outrages me. We need to keep a focus on this because in a country today with an all-volunteer military, we want people who are willing to take the risk and put their lives on the line and their well-being on the line for your and my freedom. But when they hear that we are not taking care of people who have chosen to serve, that is just absolutely rotten, and it means that people may be more reluctant to serve who would otherwise. We need to make sure that our social commitment, our contract with veterans is adhered to in these great United States. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. You know, we have off-air advice available for you for free every weekday except during holiday weeks. It's available over 40 hours each week that you can get free advice from a member of Team Clark. On Clark.com, scroll down a little, you'll see the phone number and hours available for free off-the-air advice. And by the way, if you're hungry... This is the kickoff for Chick-fil-A offering free, not free delivery, but offering delivery pretty much everywhere they are in the United States. So if you're hankering for a Chick-fil-A sandwich or nuggets or whatever, now you can have it delivered to you in a nationwide deal that they've done with DoorDash. It's funny because a lot of restaurant chains have had trouble executing a delivery strategy because of the franchise agreements they have with franchise operators. Chick-fil-A doesn't have any franchises. They have what are known as store operators, which is a completely different kind of system. So when they decide to implement something, they can just do it everywhere uniformly all at once. So sometimes things have to get bad enough to get better. And I'd say that's the case with identity theft. In the aftermath of the Equifax data breach last year, the losses to financial institutions have been horrific because criminals have so much information on so many of us that banks are in a game of whack-a-mole they're losing with all the fraud going on. So there was a little-noticed provision tucked into a law back in the spring that gives banks new power to verify your identity through your state driver's license bureau and through Social Security because the banks no longer can trust that they will have a true identity verification through Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian because it's so easy now for the identity thieves. So, and one of the weirdest things ever the real ID requirement on driver's licenses, which came about because of the September 11th terrorist attacks and legislation that followed them, and now still being implemented in a number of states, is creates a system that makes it much easier for a bank to truly verify you are who you say you are through the state databases. So here's the scoop. Look at your driver's license, not what you're driving, but look at your driver's license and you'll know you have a real ID compliant driver's license 
if there's a star in the upper right-hand corner of your driver's license. The star is kind of, uh, the circle around it is kind of mustard color, and then there's a five-pointed star. What that means is that you have been through a process with your state where your identity has been truly verified. And the state may have required you at some point in recent years to come in with a birth certificate, a couple of bills you have that come to your current address, and other identifying information, maybe a social security card, so that they, as best they can, are able to verify with not 100% certainty, but obviously much more accurate than the failed credit reporting system, they're able to verify that you are who you say you are. And so now banks will have the right, they actually have now the right, to scan your driver's license when you go in to open an account, or as so many people do, opening an account online, you will likely be asked to, to do a scan of the front and back of your driver's license and potentially your social security card when you open an account online. Because the whole risk that really exposed in the system is the fact that banks used to be small and local and they generally knew their customers. You'd walk in, you knew the people at the teller window, maybe not all of them, but you knew a few people at the teller window. You maybe knew the people at those overpriced desks that banks waste money on in their lobbies. And so there was a knowledge back and forth. And banks historically are supposed to follow a know thy customer rule. Well, that broke down as banks became these behemoths and as more and more is done online. So these new procedures really will not eliminate the use of credit reports as a way to verify identity. But because nobody in the banking industry respects the ability of the credit bureaus to properly verify identity anymore, these new systems now authorized by Congress will become more common. I, I know that they're happening because of the number of questions I've had from people wanting to do business with online banks who have called me with questions about the level of information they're being asked for to open an account. And this is why to verify you are who you say you are. Bruce is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Bruce. Hello, sir. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Great. And you have a question for me about where the best use of your money is, I guess. Yes, sir. I'm uh, in the process of purchasing a home, and I am contemplating on using either 10% or 20% down. Um, I've noticed uh, with with the 20% down, we do lose the PMI, but I ran both numbers with my lender, and there wasn't a large uh, amount to um, save if I were to put the 20% down, and the 20% down is uh, is over 25000 So I wanted to get your take on that. So the question comes, if you were to take, so you would be either putting 25000 down or 50000 down for the home. Is that what I gathered from the math you threw my way? 
That's correct. All right. So what is your safety net in your life if you were to take 50 grand to put as a down payment versus 25 grand? What do you have to what reserves would you have in the event that something happened in your life and you needed access to money? I have uh, my 401k, obviously, it's still there. I'm not touching it, but it, it is there. And um, on top of that, we probably have about 15000 um, and then I am debt-free other than would be this house. Okay, then I would definitely do the 20% down. Because okay. As, as far as PMI, you'd be avoiding an expense of 100 and something dollars a month. Is that about right? That's correct. And then in addition to that, you'd have $25,000 of money that you would own in your home instead of paying interest on all through the years at a current interest rate. Are you looking at like 4.875, somewhere in there? That's correct. Yeah, so that's interest you're never going to have to pay on that 25000 So there's a dual benefit because you can't earn 4.875% or 5% on your idle cash, but that's what you'd be paying on that money in the mortgage. So since you still have backstop in your life, there's multiple advantages to you putting the 20% in. I see. So I would I would be happy not paying the hundred and something in PMI, because think about that, that's like additional money that stays in your life every month. Okay. Sounds good. So give them the money. (laughs) Will do. All right. Best to you. Thank you. Sure. Sterling's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Sterling. Hi, Clark. How are you today? Great. Thank you, Sterling. I am so glad that you want to ask me a question about something nobody seems to understand. (laughs) That's true. Um, I was wondering with the 5G coming our way, uh, whenever it gets here, I was wondering, are we going to need new phones, or is it just going to be like a software update? You will almost 100% of the time need a new phone. Pretty much 100, but I want to hedge my bet and just say 99.99% of the time you're going to need a new phone because the phones don't have the stuff in their guts that allow them to operate the new 5G. And the first phones that will do so, to my knowledge, are coming out early next year. And, you know, every January I go to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, Mm -hmm. and I will get uh, more knowledge about 5G than any listener is ever going to want to hear. But I will have it in my head about how the transition will work. But the transition is going to be a multi-year transition. I would say that uh, if I think about some of the most rural areas in the country, we won't be fully transitioned to 5G till maybe 2022, and urban areas will be, uh, by the end of 19, we'll start to see significant inroads of 5G, and uh, most people don't know what 5G is, so I'd love to hear your explanation of what it is, Sterling. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) All right. What it is, is um, right now we operate under the coin term 4G. Mm -hmm. And it is basically a level of protocol 
or transmitting data over wireless networks and 4G is many times faster than what we had before which was called 3G. That's why so many services that are common today like Uber and Lyft and so many other app-based things we do would not have been effective with 3G because the networks were too slow and couldn't handle the amount of raw data that 4G made possible. What 5G will do is for most of us it will allow devices we have hooked up to 5G to go many times faster than the fastest home internet connections that we have today from cable companies. So it is ultra ultra fast thing but the reason the cell phone industry is so excited about it is the capacity for networks to process many many devices is off the chart scale so much larger with 5G than 4G. That's why companies are willing to pour billions and billions of dollars and worldwide it will be in the trillions of dollars to do the conversion to 5G. Sounds great. And don't spend any money on a handset that has 5G unless the company that you get your cell phone service from has brought live the 5G market where you live. That sounds great. Because the Can stuff. Can I give you a couple? Sure. Give you a couple of kudos. Um, uh, listening to you, I was able to save my dad sixty-one dollars on one of his prescriptions and over two hundred dollars a month uh, by canceling the his uh, bundle plan and getting the uh, you know the uh, wireless uh, home receiver. Well, that's fantastic. So tell me, um, how did he save the money on the prescriptions? Um, using the, what you suggested, the, can I say it, the name? Sure. Uh, GoodRx. Oh, yeah. GoodRx seems to be becoming the dominant player in discount codes for prescriptions in the United States. And mm-hmm. one thing I discovered recently is... Even if I go to who's generally the lowest cost place to get prescriptions, which is Costco, even at Costco many times, I get a lower price at Costco using a good RX code than Costco's price on prescriptions. So it's cheaper than Costco at Costco. Yeah, it was uh, significantly cheaper using the good RX versus his, uh, his insurance. And, you know, the other funny thing, Sterling, about GoodRx is that it price comparison shops from pharmacy to pharmacy, and it's eye-popping when you see something that might be an $11 prescription one place, and the same exact medicine may be $800 at the most expensive place, and the gaps from place to place with prescriptions are so large, I don't think most people realize that till you look at a price comparison tool, how great that difference is. It's time for Ask Clark. You know what that is? That's when you post a question at Clark.com. Joel asks the question for you. Clark Kenneth's got a question. He said, my daughter's having her first birthday soon. What are a few suggestions to start some type of savings for her that where we can get the most bang for our buck? So first of all, happy birthday to your one-year-old. And the best place to start is going to sound out of left field to you, but it is in your own Roth IRA 
or and if you have one fully funded and your spouse does not, and your spouse's Roth IRA. The reason is this. You're allowed to put, uh, starting in January, up to $6,000 a year in a Roth IRA. The money grows tax-free all through the years. Left alone, the money flows tax-free, all of it, in retirement. But at any point, and if you want to use this as a way to increase the amount you're doing tax-free, the money you contribute can be used for any purpose at any time. So you have money you're putting there for the long-term goal of being for your one-year-old and the money you've contributed at whatever point you can pull it out and give it to your one-year-old at a later point. All right, Clark, and Judy wrote in and said, specifically, what do you not like about fixed annuities and what alternatives are available beyond Roth and 401k investing? So fixed annuities, I don't have an hour to go through all the reasons why you should stay away from them. But number one, you have two hands tied behind your back from the beginning because the commissions are so massive and the insurance company has to come up with the money for those massive commissions and they come out of your pocket. Number two, the problem with fixed annuities is you are married to them, even if you want to divorce them, because you have this massive, massive, ginormous penalty fee you have to pay to exit that is known as a surrender charge. They are too inflexible. The tax treatment of fixed annuities is poor, and they are overhyped, oversold. And the reason they're pushed so hard is, again, the gigantic commissions that the salesperson gets, they are a product that is what's called sold, not bought, that a very convincing salesperson gets you to do the purchase of a fixed annuity, even though it's only to their advantage not to yours. All right, and Mirza wrote in and said, what's the name of that new razor you started using again, Clark? The uh, Kirkland Signature, well, I I tried both. I have the new private label Costco Kirkland Signature, and then I have the Sam's Club Members Mark, and we tested both of them on my face, and by a razor's edge, I give the win to the Members Mark blade over the Costco Kirkland Signature Blade, but they're both great. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.